If you turn with me to page 8 in the bulletin, the scripture reading today is found in Genesis chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 21. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, um, which is also what's printed in the bulletin. Just follow along with me. I'm going to read all 21 verses. Uh, Read along with me. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight years old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. She heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. And this is God's word. We're turning back to the book of Genesis. And we've been saying that the Bible is not a collection of disparate stories, uh, but a single story, a single story. And, and we're lo- we've been looking particularly in the life of Abraham before we went into the Advent. And uh, we said that Abraham is the father of the three, uh, of the largest of the world's religions. And it, when you have three world religions looking to Abraham as the father of their faith, we have to look at Abraham. We have to study Abraham. And what, what, who is Abraham? God had made a covenant with Abraham, a promise. It's more than a promise. It was a life-binding promise. God literally tied his name to the promise, his reputation to this promise. And he said, I'm through Abraham, I'm going to redeem the brokenness. Everything that is wrong with the world, I'm going to redeem it through a son that's born from Abraham. And Abraham, 100 years old, without a son, lived on the basis of that promise. Throughout the course of his life, he lived on the basis of that call. He left Ur, Uh, his hometown, he left his social and economic and religious and his cultural context and came all the way out to this desolate land in Canaan without a son, still living on the basis of that call. He he took big risks in life. 
He lived a big life, experienced tremendous triumphs. And here in this passage, we've come to the culmination of the birth of his son. Finally, at the age of 100, Sarah, around 90 years old, the heir to the promise has arrived. And yet the story has, doesn't, it doesn't end here. We see tremendous laughter, and it leads to tremendous sadness, a lot of brokenness, a lot of highs and lows in this text. In fact, it's a very difficult passage. I struggled preparing this passage in many ways. There's not a single person that I respect, uh, that I listen to regularly, who's ever preached on this passage fully, in this chapter fully. But we're going to see some amazing truths here. Three lessons, three sons. The first son, the second son, the third son. Very simple. At the same time, very difficult, very complex. The first son, it teaches us to trust in God. The second son, it teaches us to cry out to God. The third son, to behold our God, to trust and look and fix our eyes on our God. The first uh, point we learn through the first son, Isaac, the birth of Isaac, teaches us to trust in God. We see this in verses 1 to 7. First two verses, in the first two verses alone, Three times it mentions, the author mentions, that God had done as he had said or as he had promised. Three times it's mentioned in those first two verses alone. And it's mentioned by the author, and here is Sarah whose laughter results in Sarah's laughter. And this teaches us that God's word, you can take him at his word. God's word is dependable. You know, people like to teach that the moral of this story Look at all that Sarah endured to finally arrive at Isaac. It teaches us to be like Abraham, to be like Sarah. Trust God the way Abraham trusted God. Trust God the way Sarah trusted God. But in reality, if you think about it, if you look at Sarah and the history of Sarah's, the saga that is Isaac, you see that Sarah had terrible faith. Abraham hardly, there were times when he hardly trusted at all. In fact, the mess that you see in chapter 21 is result consequence of their lack of faith their lack of trust from verses 8 and on sarah had horrible faith this is not the first time that sarah laughed in the bible the first time that sarah laughed was in chapter 18 which we covered several weeks ago that laugh was a bitter laugh it was a bitter laughter in chapter 18 sarah was literally laughing in the presence of god god had appeared to her to tell her that she was going to bear a son, and her laughter was bitter. It was a mocking laughter. It was a self-loathing laughter. Why? Why was she self-loathing in her laughter? It's because she's now 90. God is promising her that she'll have a son. Her laughter is cynical because she's looking at her life. She's old. She had been cheated on in some ways by her husband. Her husband had slept with another woman, Hagar, the slave woman. She had actually given him over to her so that she, at least somehow they can have a son. She had probably, she had been promised to the Pharaoh in Egypt. When they were in Egypt, the Pharaoh had taken notice of Sarah and Abraham had lied about Sarah being her wife and said that she was a sister so that his life could be spared. So he basically sold her out. And so Sarah is now reflecting on her 90 years. God promises her a son and she says, I'm used up. In fact, the word that she uses, she says, I'm worn out. The actual literal phrase there is, I'm used up. Self-loathing, and she laughs, she mocks God. And here in this passage, what do you see? A true son, the actual heir to the promise, is born to her. God renews her joy. 
God renews. Here's this barren woman. Apart from God, nothing could have happened to give her a son, and yet now she has a son, and she's laughing. And she literally says, laughter has God made me. God has brought me laughter, but literal, in the literal language, laughter has God made me. It was a double entendre. On one hand, what she's seeing is Sarah's reminded of the joy that's brought to her because she now has a son. I have joy because God hears me. God is present in my life. She now trusts. She now realizes that. But at the same time, it's a double entendre. She's being freed. All the social pressures of her day, laughter has God made me. What she's saying, she says, you know, the people are going to laugh with me. But in actuality, what she's saying is, when they see me nursing Isaac, imagine a 90-year-old nursing a child. It's funny. It's gross. She says, people are now, they're not just going to laugh with me. The actual language is, they're going to laugh at me. But listen to Sarah. She's laughing. Her joy is renewed. God has restored her laughter. And, and she now knows that her son is a special son. He could have only been born supernaturally, which means God's faithfulness was personal. She literally experienced God's presence in her life. Despite her flaws, despite her, her, her physical inability, despite her spiritual weakness, her lack of trust, God had done what he was promised, what he had promised. You know, the difference between religion and a life tr- transformed by grace is this. Religion, you're obeying, you're trusting, but you're always wondering, does God hear me? Is God, is God present? And so you're constantly working to get his attention. You're constantly working so that God in, in actuality owes you because if I just obey, if I just work hard, then surely God will hear me. But that leads to insecurity. And that insecurity, when God doesn't answer your prayers, it leads to bitterness. Your laughter It's a mocking laughter. Whenever you hear God's name, you laugh almost mockingly. It's a resentful laughter, especially when you fail because what you're saying is, you know, I tried my best to obey, you know, but God never gave me what I wanted. He never heard me. And that's different from a life transformed by grace. We could be sitting here. You could have grown up in the church, but all you've lived was a religious life. It's hard to admit that we've lived religious lives all our lives. But what's a life transformed by grace? You're experiencing God's faithfulness firsthand. You're experiencing God's presence firsthand. You know that God has provided, even though you didn't deserve it. And what that leads to is a life of gratitude. Your life, your obedience comes out of knowing and trusting that God has heard you, that God is present in your life. And the thing is, a lot of times for most of us, you need the bitterness in order to have the joy In fact, for all of us, we all need to experience the bitter laughter many times in our lives before we experience the joyous laughter in our lives. Think about it. What's heaven like without having experienced bitterness in our lives? You know, in in heaven, if you didn't have suffering, if you didn't experience bitterness, if you didn't experience failure, in heaven you would never experience the meaning of courage, the meaning of sacrifice, the meaning of of what it's like to triumph after failure. So heaven actually would less, be less complete if 
you didn't have these bitter experiences sometimes in our lives that forces us to wait, that forces us to sometimes get down. You know, sometimes we fall apart. You know, I, it's incredibly moving. If you read um, Time Magazine articles, Newsweek articles in 2001, particularly after 9-11, people who had fallen to the ground after they heard that family members who were on the plane, family members who were actually in the buildings, you know, many of us actually may have had friends. I've certainly had friends who are actually in the World Trade Center. And at, at the experience of that loss, you know, them falling to the ground, and yet there are now 10 years later they had written articles about the rebirth of the city, the rebirth of the people who had experienced such hardship, where their lives are today. A lot of times we need to experience the bitterness in order to understand and know God's presence in our lives. And that's what we're seeing here with Sarah. The word of God is dependable. Listen to his word. Hear God's word. Study God's word. You have to hear what God says. You have to trust in what God says. Verse three to four, Abraham names him Isaac. And then what happens is after eight days, he circumcises his son, just like God commanded him and said. In other words, Abraham was relinquishing control. God says, here's what I want you to do with Isaac. He's not just your son. He's my promise. He's an heir to my promise. So Abraham does exactly what God tells him to do. In other words, he heard him. He trusted in God's word. He learned. You know, a personal relationship means that we trust God. We don't just trust in God. We don't just believe God. We trust God. We trust his word. The act of circumcision is what? It's incredibly painful because what you're doing is you're tearing away flesh. And you're taking someone who's very weak and you're tearing away flesh, but it symbolizes that covenant relationship with God. God takes, you know, when you tear away the flesh, what God is saying is that I am making a promise with you. May it be done to me. It's a reminder to you. Every child that's born in your lineage, it's a reminder of my promise that may I be torn away if I ever fail you, Abraham. If I ever fail you, may I be torn away. But in the same way, if you fail me, it's a love-binding relationship. Now you trust me. If you fail to trust, you're gonna experience the misery. You're gonna experience the desolate nature of what it's like to be apart from me. Stay with me. Stay close to my word. And we see that repeated over. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, Moses, as he lies dying, in chapter 31, the last chapter of, of Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' teachings as he's preparing to die. The last chapter, he says, he recounts the word. He says to this new generation, hear the word, listen to my word. That's the first son. Isaac teaches us to trust God. The second son is Ishmael. Abraham is greatly distressed because of matters concerning his son Ishmael. Because now there's discord in the family. Now that Isaac's born, what happens to Ishmael, the son that was born through the other maidservant, the slave servant, Hagar? And uh, it creates tremendous problems. We see that the infant mortality rate was very high in those days. Most children didn't live to see the first birthday. And so you didn't even name your child until after the first birthday many times. But by age three, that's the weaning period, the child became healthy and strong. Now you knew that the weaning period was over and you had this big, big celebration. And that's what you're seeing here in the latter part, the second part of, of, um, of Genesis chapter 21. 
Isaac is being weaned. The celebration now takes place because he's past the age of three and he's healthy and he's strong. And uh, what do you see? Ishmael is in his teens. He was born a decade earlier. He's in his teens now. And during the celebration, Ishmael starts to mock Isaac. Verses 8 to 10, he's mocking him. In fact, the word in verse 9, when he says that he's laughing, he's mocking it's a, it's a play on Isaac's name. Isaac's name means laughter. It's actually a super intense uh, version of Isaac's name. He's actually make, making fun of his name directly and mocking him using his name. And, and Sarah is witnessing this. Sarah sees this and, and she's distressed. It makes her angry and it dawns on Sarah that as long as Ishmael is here, they had to share the inheritance because they're both sons of Abraham. In fact, Ishmael was born first. And she says, never will this happen. I'm going to send Ishmael away. Who's Hagar? Hagar is a slave woman. She was probably acquired during the time when Abraham and Sarah left Canaan. They disobeyed God. They left Canaan and they were in Egypt. She was an Egyptian slave woman. And Sarah came up with a plan because she didn't have a child. And so she said, I want you to take Hagar. I want you to sleep with Hagar. And I want you to bear, get a son. And, and they name him Ishmael. Ishmael actually means maybe God heard us. Maybe this is the child of promise. It's kind of a play on words. And, it, and it's a double entendre. It means maybe God heard. Or maybe this is the son that God promised. And Sarah is miserable. And, you know, because, you know, she, she sees Hagar with a child. And, and she's jealous and she's miserable. And, and she's being mocked. And so Hagar, she, treats, she mistreats Hagar, and, and Hagar runs away. But while Hagar's out in the wilderness, God calls her back. God says, come back. I want you to stay. And now 10 years have gone by, and Ishmael has turned the tables and is mocking Isaac because he's older than Isaac. And Sarah steps in and sends them away. In fact, in verse 10, she says, I want you to take your mates of it. She doesn't even address her by name. She's lived with her over a decade. No intimacy, completely cuts her off. 14 years have gone by, no relationship. I want you to send these, this child and the maidservant, uh, his mother away. And verses 11 to 13, Abraham is so distressed, God gets involved. He says, Abraham, I want you to listen to Sarah. I want you to send them away. Both sons are going to be blessed. Don't worry. Both sons are going to become great. Both sons are going to have a nation underneath them because Ishmael still is your son and I'm going to do what I promised you. There's no mistaking with God. God never makes mistakes. He says, trust me, send them away. And so they send them away and uh, Hagar's name, she lives up to her name. Her name means forsaken. She says, I'm forsaken. She lives up to her name. They're sent away. They're forgotten. And Hagar, verses 14 to 16, Hagar goes to Beersheba. Beersheba, if you know anything about Beersheba, it's the place of the Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Ishmael builds a nation right outside in the Mecca. And, um, but at that moment, they're left to die. They're in the desert. There's poverty. There's nothing to eat. They've run out of things to drink. The skin is gone, right? The skin, the, the canteen that holds the water. And it's a sad state for a mother, right? Because their son, the little child, the child, the young child, you know, in his teens, is dying, dying of thirst in the desert. And Sarah, uh, Hagar sees his son and she starts to weep. She starts to sob. 
And uh, verse 17, it isn't until verse 17, Ishmael starts to sob. And as Ishmael starts to sob, God hears him. Again, Ishmael's name means maybe God has heard me. God hears him. And what does this tell you? That despite Ishmael's mocking, despite his sinfulness, which actually caused him to get sent off, God heard. God hears. Despite all of his flaws, Ishmael is born to a slave woman. He's not a Jew. He's a half-breed. In fact, there's tremendous, God speaks against that in many ways in the Bible. Um, in, the, in the old days, you know, that as part of his word, he says, don't mix in. And yet Ishmael, this half-breed, child of a slave, who's, who refused to acknowledge the son of the promise, sent away, left to die, is heard by God. And God says, I will make him into a great nation. He comforts Hagar. He says, I'm going to make him into a great nation. And he opens up Hagar's eyes, and Hagar sees a well in verse 19. And she has something to drink. She has relief. And Ishmael has relief. And she's able to clean herself. And she finds refreshment. And she finds revival. They find new life there. What does this teach us? We can be discouraged, you know, the end of the year, and it kinda, it's kind of coinciding. This passage wasn't tuned to the new year, but as we approach the end of the year, you look at your failures. A lot of us, we look at what's ahead. We're afraid of what's ahead a lot of times. As you get older, your fear increases because you have more risks. But as you look back, you look at all the things that, all the good things, but if you have a, time to mo- a moment to reflect, you think about your failures, the things that you did wrong. That's why we have New Year's resolutions, right? Because we say, I want to correct these things. But, you know, we see that we suffer. We see that we're sinners. We see that we're cursed a lot of times. We look at all of our losses. We grieve. We see our selfishness. Uh, and the one thing that makes a difference in our lives is what? Does God hear God hears. He hears us in our weakness. You could be wounded by your flaws. You could have wounded other people because of your flaws. You could be mourning your losses, losses done against you, wrongs done against you, losses that you've perpetrated in other people's lives. And yet, this passage is absolutely remarkable. Why? Because it teaches us that God is present, that God is active. He's active in our lives. Verses 19 to 21, Ishmael grows he's an he's an archer which is why you know you see clues to that because sarah hears uh, hagar hears him a bow shot away he was obviously growing up as an archer he becomes a successful archer he becomes a warrior and founds a warrior nation he becomes a survivor he learns what it means to survive and and what does this tell you uh, you know as he becomes a father of a nation the gospel transcends ethnic boundaries it transcends cultural boundaries. It transcends language boundaries. And here you have Isaac, a purebred Jew, who is the son of the promise, and he is blessed. That makes sense. But on the other hand, you see the rejected half-son. He's also blessed. God hears him. What does that mean? You know, that if he could, heal, if he could hear a boy instead of his parent, he doesn't answer until the boy starts to sob. If he could hear the weaker instead of the stronger. If he could hear, if he watches over the oppressed slave woman versus who is the focus of this text, 
not the slave owner. If he listens to the non-Jew, the half-son, instead of the son of promise, if God can hear Hagar, if God can hear Ishmael, then surely he can hear us and he will hear us. You can go to him. You can go to him confidently. You can go to him. You can cry out to him. That's the first lesson. But the second thing we see is that you know, you can say, you know, I tried. I tried to go to God. I tried to pray to God, but he doesn't hear me. He doesn't care. I feel rejected by God, so I'm going to reject God. Nothing is more foolish than that. You can actually go to him. No one understands what it's like to be rejected by God more than Jesus. On the cross, Jesus says, I've become Hagar. I am forsaken. God doesn't hear me. So when you pray, you know, I, God doesn't hear me, no one understands more than Jesus. That means if Jesus experienced everything you experienced, then you can go to him with anything. You can go to him with anything. What's the one prerequisite to being heard by God? You need to cry out. You need to admit that you're weak. You need to admit that there is brokenness around you and it's breaking you and it's wounding you and you've wounded other people. You just need to go to him. You just need to cry out to him. The prerequisite for a personal experience with God is utter weakness. And, you know, there's a type of weakness that makes you bitter and it makes you angry and it makes you weepy and it makes you hopeless. That kind of anger, it's going to lead you to despair. But there's also a type of weakness that brings you to see greater, deeper things about God. This type of loss, this type of brokenness, it's going to prime you. It's going to prepare you to experience God himself, to experience God's presence. We all need that. The question is, how do you get it? And that's the third point. How do you get this? How are we assured that God is actually active and present in our lives? You have to look to the third son. The Apostle Paul takes this passage, what's going on here, because it's confusing. There's a lot of reasons why it's confusing. In fact, it's a very controversial passage because of the cultural and religious roots. Wars are fought over this passage. The Apostle Paul explains it in Galatians chapter 4. And I'm not going to go into depth in Galatians chapter 4, but what he explains here is that, get it this way, there was no miracle at the birth of Ishmael. He was born naturally. There was nothing special about that birth. You know, you can knock it all you want, but at the end of the day, there's just nothing special about it. But there's something incredibly special about the birth of Isaac. He was born supernaturally. He was born as a result of a promise. The Apostle Paul says Christians are not born naturally. We're all born naturally here. But Christians are born supernaturally. We're born as children of promise. And the Apostle Paul says we're children of the free woman. We're 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 children who are born as a result of a promise. The gospel is not just about principles. It's not just about rules. It's more than that. It's not less than that. But it's more than that, incredibly more than that. In fact, what makes it the gospel, what makes it good news is that it's so much more than that. It transcends those rules. There was a miracle at the birth of Isaac. And what that means is that there's a difference between the old son and the new son, the old way and the new way, the old life and the new life. 
Ishmael represented the old way, the old birth. That's us being born natural. We're born as slaves. We're born under a slave woman. We're born as slaves. We're slaves to the law. We're slaves to our desires. We're slaves to our pursuits. We're slaves to the law as a result. And Paul says anyone who's born is born as a result of the law. We're born in the law. We're born as slaves. Now you say, you know, I'm not that religious. I'm free. I don't have anything binding me. Yeah, really? Think about it. Try and be perfect for one day on your own. Better yet, try to achieve everything you've dreamed of on your own in one lifetime. There will be failure. You can't escape that. You know why? It's because you're born. Every one of us is, are born in the law. In the law. We've set up rules. Every one of us here has rules for success. You have a picture of success. It may be slightly different than the person next to you. But by and large, it's very similar. And we all fail. And when you look at other people who are successful, what does that result in? Bitter laughter. Resentful laughter. You say, that guy doesn't deserve it. I do. And you laugh at him and you mock him. And yet you despair. Why? Because you fail. We've all experienced failure. Why? Because we're born under the law. That's the old life. And you become slaves to that. You know why? Because deep in our roots, in our ancestral history, at the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, we were all free. We were actually all born free. But as a result of sin in our lives, what's happened was we've become slaves. The presence of God has left us, and as a result, there's a God-sized hole that's been built in us, and we're trying to fill that hole constantly. We're constantly trying to fill that hole. And we fill it with money, and we fill it with power, and we fill it with our relationships. We're desperate for that one relationship in our lives. You know what that means? You're a slave. Because we're a slave to the law. That's the old life. We're constantly working to fill that hole. But the new life, the Apostle Paul says we've been born supernaturally. It's born through grace. You can't get that life on your own. We've been born supernaturally through God's power and his love through Jesus Christ. Sin and religion try to prevent us from that new birth. And so the Apostle Paul says you've got to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. You've got to get rid of that life. You've got to get rid of that old life, your old ways, all your pursuits. That one thing right now every one of us are controlled by. Every one of us are controlled or moved by that one thing in our lives, at least one thing. He says, you've got to let go. You've got to banish it. You can't just keep it coinciding in your life. If you let it coexist in your life, you, we find ways today to justify coexisting with our sinfulness because we're trying to connect with people, because we're trying to live uh, not so distant from other people who we want to bring to the church. That's what we say. We try to justify by coexisting with our sinfulness. But the thing is, that results in misery. The Bible promises, just as God had promised all the other joys and blessings of his provision, he promises misery when we try to coexist with the old life. He says, oust that life. How do you do that? How do you distance yourself from the old life? You need to look to one who is greater than Isaac. Sarah was able to distance herself from Ishmael and Hagar, which is really a product of her sinfulness. 
because she beheld Isaac. She literally beheld Isaac. We have to behold, we have one who's greater than Isaac. We need to behold the third son, God's only son, Jesus. Now, earlier in the passage, Sarah says, when people look at me, they're going to laugh. When people look at Isaac and they look at me nursing Isaac, they're going to laugh at me. And when Ishmael looked at Isaac, he mocked him. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross. And the people laughed at him. And they were mocking him. And they were hurling insults at him. They put a sign above his head and said, here is the king of the Jews. They were mocking his name. They were literally mocking his name in an intense way. Sarah was able to laugh. Verses 1 to 7, Sarah, she had renewed laughter. Why? Because God heard her. Hagar, the forsaken, is out in the desert. The banished one, the one that was born as a result of a sin. Her name was forsaken, and yet God heard her. But on the cross, you know, Ishmael in the desert, the son, who wasn't the son of promise, right? The son that was born naturally. God heard him in the desert. In the wilderness, on the cross, Jesus, the true son of the promise, the greater Isaac. He, was, he lived a greater life than Isaac would ever live. He lived a greater life than Ishmael could ever live. And yet on the cross, he says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I have become Hagar. I have become Ishmael. Ishmael cried out. And his name was given to him. Maybe God heard him on the cross. Jesus, the true son of the promise, says, I'm not heard. I was born as God's son, but God had forsaken me. The nails, the thorns, I can endure those things. The people's rejection, their mockery, I can endure those things, but God has forsaken me. I cannot endure this. This I cannot endure. I cannot find relief. There's no well for me here. There's no, there's no relief. There's no revival. There's no renewal. Jesus was cosmically abandoned by the Father so we can be accepted by the Father. Jesus was cosmically rejected. In a worldly way, he was rejected, but he was cosmically rejected by the Father. Why? So that we can be heard. We live like Ishmael. This past week, most of us, if we cataloged, our spiritual state, we would say we failed. We're like Ishmael in the wilderness. We can come to Jesus. We can cry out. You know why? God hears us. You know why? Because the one person that deserved to be heard was rejected by God. On the cross, Jesus said, I have no father. Why? So that we could become sons of promise. On the cross, Jesus said, I'm torn apart. He literally became the circumcision. He says, my body is being ripped to shreds. I'm being, I'm being thrown away. I'm being cast away. I'm being ripped and tossed away. I've become the circumcision. Jesus lived the life that we should live, and yet he was cast off as one who did not obey, as one who did not trust. That's why we can come. That's, every time you look at the cross, every time you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you just see a baby in a manger? It's cute. It's adorable. Do you think that's why they came and adored him? Do you think that's why Mary was willing to sacrifice disgrace, being born out of, uh, having a child out of wedlock? Do you think that's why she said, it's worth it all because I'm going to have a son? No. 
the reason why we can say, I can suffer ridicule, I can suffer intense mockery, I can suffer being slighted, I can endure these things, my reputation counts less. Why? Because Jesus' righteousness, his reputation has been placed on me. Behold the Son. I can behold the Son. When you look at the cross, what do you see? You see acceptance. You see hope. You see renewal. You see revival. In John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, dirty, not a Jew. She was a Samaritan. She was the opposite of being Jewish. She was their enemy. She was dirty. She was impure. She had five husbands. The man she was sleeping with at the time was not her husband. She was rejected by her own people. That's how dirty she was. She comes to Jesus, thirsty. And Jesus says, I am going to give you living water. You know what that means? I can cleanse you. I can refresh you. I can renew you. I can give you joy. You just need to come. It's almost like a wedding. It's almost like she's walking down the aisle to that well, the well of living water. You know why? You know why we can drink of that? All it takes is for us to say we're thirsty. In this season of newness, how do you become new? You come to Jesus and say, I'm broken. That woman at the well walked away. She forgot why she even came. She dropped her water jar, it said in John chapter 4. Why? Because her deeper thirst was quenched. Are you thirsty? Are you suffering? Are you estranged at times from your spouse? Are you estranged sometimes from your own children? Do you sometimes feel relationally disconnected from people right next to you? People that you love most? Are you constantly working and working and working to make your relationship work? Because you need that relationship to give you a sense of worth? You're trying to fill that hole. You fill it with money and status and power. Your pedigree, you need these things. That's why we put on nice clothes. What did you buy for Christmas with your gift cards? Because I need to look right. I need to be right. That is a God-sized hole we're trying to fill. Sarah was able to laugh because she beheld the son of promise. Will you look to the son of promise I'll, I'll end this story, this narrative with a story. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, there was, in the times of, uh, right before the Russian Revolution, the, the Soviet Revolution, there was a Russian soldier, um, you know, a private. He was basically a Russian soldier, and um, he had, uh, was certainly evidently in charge of uh, the treasury um, of his platoon, and he had spent, he had squandered he had basically taken and embezzled money from the Russian treasury on gambling, and he lost big. And so he had, he had lost so much money that he couldn't pay it back. And he knew that um, once the officers find out, he would be executed. He would be disgraced. So what does he do? He takes all of his debts, all of his gambling debts, he places it in front of him, and he writes out, across the debts, a great debt who can pay. And his intent was to drink himself to oblivion and then shoot himself with his shotgun. But evidently he drank so much he fell asleep. And he fell into sleep. And late that night it was known, it was customary for the czar himself, Nicholas, to actually once in a while visit members, his soldiers in the front line. He would visit them. And he happened upon this soldier 
hunched over, sleeping, drunk, with these gambling debts, a symbol of all the debt that he owed, owed the government that he could not pay, and written across a great debt, who can pay? Well, Nicholas scribbled something underneath and walked away. The next morning, the man realized he couldn't even kill himself, right? He, he woke up. He failed. But underneath a great debt, who can pay, written in red, was, I can. Signed, the czar. A great debt, who can pay? He says, I can. And I did. How do you think that soldier regarded his king? When you behold the sun today, this week, this new year, how will you regard the king? How will you behold the sun? Can you say to yourself, a great dead, who can pay? You know what leads to a life of gratitude? When you behold the sun, he says, I can. He says, I did. I did it by sacrificing my life for you. Only Jesus could, and only Jesus was willing, gladly. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's written in your word of encouragement. Who endured the cross, scorning its shame, for the joy set before him, it said. What was Jesus' joy? In Isaiah 53, that's the call to worship. If you read further into Isaiah 53, It says, he would be satisfied. What made him satisfied? You know what he was thinking about on the cross? You're not, you're thinking, oh, like he's thinking, oh, my arms, oh, my hands, oh, my feet. That's not what he was thinking. He said, I've been forsaken. But actually, in Isaiah 53, it says that he was satisfied. He was glad to do it. Why? Because underneath, right after that, it says, because of the people who would be saved as a result of it. That was his joy. You behold the son. You know what he beheld? Your salvation. That was his joy. Will you behold the son? Will you behold the son? Because he has beheld you as his joy. Let's pray.